up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. All right. Well, welcome back to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoomland with Deanna Zhang. And for those who aren't familiar, Deanna is an absolute rock star when it comes to blogging, speaking, advising, content creation. She's the executive in residence at Rice Alliance for Technology and Entrepreneurship, an advisor for Boundless Capital Partners, speaker, and finally consultant and advisor for eTech Monkey. Deanna, it's an absolute honor to have you back on my new show. And how's it going in your world? It's going well. As you pointed out in my bio, I've got a lot of little things going on. I wouldn't say little, Deanna. Come on. It's a lot of big things. Okay. Very humble of you, but no, these are big things. <laughs> it's been super interesting and in a super fulfilling way to, to spend my time is just talking with startups, mentoring them. And then also with the content creation, kind of thinking around questions that I find interesting and hopefully thought-provoking that other people will hopefully find interesting and thought-provoking as well. Absolutely. It's crazy. And we're going to dive into that. And for the listeners that haven't been following me for quite a while, as I had you on my former show, which was Oil and Gas on Shore, almost exactly a year ago, because I wanted to look back. I'm like, oh, wow, it's funny. It's October, kind of like an annual get-together here. But so much has changed since that. And one of the bigger events that's taken place is appears you moved to Colorado. So how is Denver treating you? Yeah, Denver is really nice. <laughs> I grew up in Houston. I also went to Houston right out of college and spent seven plus years there working in Houston. So I've actually never really experienced a new city like as a working professional. And so it was, it's kind of been a nice change just to be here and be forced to engage with a new network and and make new friends. <laughs> yeah. And explore a very different city, I think, from Houston. There are commonalities in sort of the economy and people go back and forth a lot, but there are things that are obviously very different. So been enjoying just having new experiences. That's awesome. So you said making friends. So how does one like yourself who's extremely busy go out and make new friends? Or are these all like industry related friends? Like, cause have you joined any like random, like running clubs or you know, whatever, like, <laughs> anything random that you've just been like, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm in a new city. I'm going to meet new people. Like, have you done anything? Yeah, no, I haven't been very good about that. I had a friend who invited me to running club, Okay, <laughs> uh, run club, maybe a couple months ago. And I chickened out because I realized moving here that it was going to take me a while to get used to the altitude. Like <laughs> in Houston, I could run three miles, no problem. Came here and I was like halfway down the block, huffing and puffing. <laughs> <laughs> my ears are red, ears are hurting, things like oh that. Oh my so, gosh. So I kind of chickened out of that one. The nice thing has been I've had a good foundation of people I already knew here, the Boundless guys I've known for a couple of years now, and they have a whole network around them that that yeah. I've gotten to know while in Houston. And a ton of my friends actually ended up moving here. Oh, good. And are here. So just having a good base layer of people I know. I did end up joining the Colorado Clean Tech Industries Association, CCIA, has an energy fellows program that I yeah. joined a month after coming here. And what they do is they put you in this cohort of other sort of energy 
related professionals or professionals that want to get to know the clean tech space. And they take you around to all these clean tech companies around Denver and the broader Denver area. And we take tours, we listen to speakers, we get to network a lot. And so it was a great way for me to just like immediately get introduced to a bunch of the major players in the ecosystem here, but then also like be able to make friends with the cohort that I was with, which to this day, we still like run into each other a lot, talk a lot. Like they've been a really good group of people to, to get to know. I guess that's one of the things I did. I made sure I got the opportunity to do coming here, which credit to Michael Stoker at, at Boundless. He was the one that introduced me to the program, but Mary and, and the team over at CCA really, really do a great job of making sure people have a really good experience in wow. that program. So loved it. Yeah. So it sounds like you haven't been shy of any opportunity to be around others and you know network. And again, it's a support system. Ultimately, when you move to a new city, you kind of depend on people you know. And next thing you know, you're surrounded by great people. And obviously in a great city, Denver is amazing. And so, well, it's cool to hear. It sounds like you're happy and things are kicking off and hopefully the move was okay. And friends and family, I'm sure miss you, but it's for all good reason, right? Yeah, yeah. And I go to Houston pretty frequently. I would say I almost split my time between Denver and Houston Ah. these days. I make it down for a couple days a month at least. Like this month, I'm pretty much down there every week (laughs) Okay, for a day or two at least. So yeah, so it's been good to just like kind of balance out living here, but also maintaining a really good network in Houston and all the people that I know that are doing really great things down there as well. Yeah, no kidding. That's so cool to hear. Well, I'm glad everything's going well. And before we keep going, I do want to remind all the listeners that I'm currently opening up sponsorship opportunities. If any energy-focused companies are looking to increase brand marketing, visibility, and awareness around your company's initiatives through the podcast, please reach out. I would love to work with you. So I want to kick things off and really make sure that the listeners who are listening probably the first 10 minutes and then may you know veer off after that, you're doing some amazing work on the content creation side. And so can you describe, because you've got a blog, you're talking about kind of evolving that into some workshops, and then we can kind of go from there. But that stuff you're doing is amazing and more people need to hear about it, subscribe, learn, and all the rest of it. So yeah, share that if you would. Yeah. So my blog is called etechmonkey.com. And the name is just kind of a funny way to describe myself, which is I came from the energy tech world. So etech. And I was a banker, so I was kind of just an Excel monkey in a Ah, lot of ways. I didn't want to take myself too seriously. Although the content on the blog has become a little bit more introspective and and a little bit more serious than maybe what eTech Monkey suggests. I write a lot about energy transition and climate tech broadly. And I would say the content is kind of divided into a couple different areas. There's market maps. So I do a lot of deep dives into different areas around climate tech, what companies are working in those areas and how they differentiate from each other. And then money musings, so like thoughts on different funding vehicles in climate tech. My most recent series was on first-of-a-kind commercial funding and how we can create a new vehicle for that and sort of what sorts of funding types are out there for first-of-a-kind commercial. And then the final kind of category of content is really just Things that I find are underrepresented to areas of climate tech like recycling or water are areas in which I find that there's not enough representation sometimes in in dialogue and conversations 
sometimes I make just random observations around what I've heard and what I've seen in those areas to try to just spread the word on the nuances. And that's like really the key part of my content is really trying to find nuance in a lot of different topics and research questions and trying to bring out nuance that isn't really highlighted by many other people. Gotcha. And then you mentioned the workshop. So what I'm trying to do out of this content is really to bring together people that are interested in sort of the same topic and to hopefully hold some productive workshops around those topics. And the idea being, you know, we have conferences, energy transition conferences, you know, almost every two weeks. <laughs> yeah. There's a ton of events around these. I think it's difficult sometimes to kind of go through this event and find like actual actionable takeaways from the panels, from the speaker events. Yes. You know, unless you're kind of in a sort of roundtable situation with other people that have active opinions about this topic. So that's kind of what I want to create out of the content is like professionals that have thought about this topic, pre-prepared basically for this topic, and that want to share their opinions and workshop with other professionals that are thinking about the same thing. And my first workshop will be, or set of workshops, we'll see, will be on first-of-kind commercial. How can we increase funding for first-of-kind commercial? How can we create new vehicles for first-of-kind commercial? What sorts of things are out there that are working first-of-kind commercial? So I want to get some community opinions on that and workshop around that. Very cool. And for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with that term, what is first-of-kind commercial? So first-of-kind commercial is kind of a stage for a hard tech company where they are finally, they've gone through R&D, they've gone through prototyping, they've gone through kind of pilot and demo facilities or demo assets yeah. and have finally gotten to the point where they're deploying their first commercial asset. So an asset or facility that is actually producing product to sell to customers and is generating a positive ROI. So not just being built for the purposes of proving out the technology, but being built out to prove out the commercial model for the company. Mm, yeah. So that's first of a kind of commercial. And I feel throughout my research that it's probably the least funded space in climate tech right now. And partially because so many technologies just haven't gotten to that stage yet. Most of the companies that have emerged in climate tech over the last few years are still going through kind of pilot phase at the very least. Even the one, the public ones, you know, the ones that went through the stack process in 2021 or 2020, a lot of them are still piloting, <laughs> which is right. kind of amazing to think about for public companies. Yeah, first of kind commercial, I think, is going to be obviously necessary to bring a lot of these technologies to scale. My opinion is that we don't currently have sufficient funding and sufficiently creative vehicles in order to find a type of unique project. Why do you think that is? Well, so. I think it's evolved a little bit from what sorts of funding has been available for the general market and then also for energy in particular. So, you know, you have kind of in broad strokes, you have venture capital, you have growth equity, you have private equity and you have infrastructure, infrastructure capital and infrastructure capital oftentimes works with project finance, which is another very conservative set of capital providers. So you have high risk, so VC capital, that's used to writing small checks for a large number of companies. You've got growth equity and private equity, which for large part have been deployed around already revenue generating or already cash flowing companies. And then you've got infrastructure equity and project finance, which is, you know, they like to see projects that have been done two or three times before they actually put money forward to scale that 
infrastructure up. So they're used to funding bridges or plants that exist already, first of the kind. So when you look at that spectrum of capital, there really isn't a good risk entity that will take a risk on technology, that will take a risk on a new commercial model as well, or like a new developer, and then also has the check size to be able to fund kind of these like very capital intensive hard tech technologies that exist in climate tech. Mm. And then the added complication too is that climate tech is a unique sector in that we're all working against the timeline. It's not yeah. just, you know, we're trying to put money forward to bring whatever business models naturally evolve to be the winners. We don't have time for that, right? Like, yeah, we have 30 years to kind of fix our problem or that's, there's a lot of science that goes behind saying that we have to abide by that timeline or else there's going to be very negative effects that come about from lack of action. And so because we're working as a timeline, we kind of have to almost artificially accelerate the commercialization of these technologies. Mm. And, you know, you can do that with government funding or regulatory action. You can do that with philanthropic capital as well, because there's no expectation necessarily of return or you're doing it for a social cause. But there's just not enough capital out there from the government, from the philanthropic world to be able to incentivize the kind of scale up we need for climate tech. And so we need, you know, private vehicles. We need like the money makers to actually care about this problem and care to accelerate these technologies. And so how do we do that? How do we enable them to make a return off their investment while also putting money forward in, in this area, which is just not naturally suited to kind of a safe return on investment? Yeah. So it's a super, super interesting problem. And I believe I'm very optimistic that we're going to find really creative financing vehicles, just like how VC and private equity kind of came about in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was this problem around these emerging companies needing risk capital, and the world solved it with a new entity, right? And I I believe we're kind of at this point with climate tech as well. Wow. No, it's fascinating. And although there are a ton of challenges that are presented in front of us, I think it just really, at the end of the day, just shows us how much opportunity there is to make a difference, ultimately. And I'm curious because you can tell as you're speaking, like there's a deep level of passion behind this. Like what really is driving this sort of desire to help climate tech? Does anything kind of like beyond just the surface level? Like is it in terms of like, are you more much very interested in like just the environment and the possible impact and trying to like, you know, not to sound like cliche, like save the world, or is it more like you just think there's opportunity for investment? I mean, because you come from the investment world, you come to TPH, obviously. And so like you were very much on the front lines of like, you know, where the money was flowing. So is it kind of a combination of the two or like why, like what's the why behind doing what you're doing? Because a lot of what you're doing is content creation. A lot of stuff is, you know, just out of your own interest. I mean, what's the reason behind it all? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you must feel this too, but it's not purely selfless, right? Like I'm getting a lot of good exposure, a lot of good, yeah. good branding from putting out content. And there's like sort of a thrill that I get when, you know, something I write like gets a lot of traction and people enjoy it and people give me good feedback on it. So of course, there's definitely a selfish reason for putting out this content. But, you know, like I think for me, there's an urgency, obviously, with the timeline and everything. And I realize there are just a lot of people that are going to be impacted by lack of action around this problem. 
I would say the personal incentive around this is actually like a little bit more abstract. Like I've always felt an affinity towards social enterprise, like a way for companies to make money, but then also do good for the community. And I think it's also comes from how I want to live my personal life is how can I be comfortable and successful, but then also like be very mindful and considerate and like give back to community as well. That kind of ethos really resonates with me. It's a big problem right now with like kind of a purely capitalistic, purely sort of like money-making model that we have in a lot of these areas where that's just not taken into consideration. So ESG is kind of the counter movement to that. I want to say like, it's not anti-capitalism. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm picking up what you're putting down. So something that popped into my head and I don't know, it may be hard to articulate, but like a lot of the publicly traded companies and stuff like that, like obviously there's a lot of good intent out there with regards to shifting and deploying capital in sort of more environmental type of areas, whether it's carbon capture or whether it's wind, solar, whatever, because obviously stuff like you're talking about is going to take time to realize, right? Like this is not immediate ROI to where, you know, you may see something come back in six, eight, 10, 12 months, but like publicly traded companies are always measured quarterly. Like what is a quarter earning? So perhaps like there's a lot of like immediate decisions that need to be made to make sure the next quarter looks good for Wall Street. But like, do you think the private sector is really going to be the ones to actually truly make a difference from a macro perspective to like have, like if someone's starting a company and wants to invest, it's like, I'm going to invest for the next hundred years. Like this is, or like 20 or 30 or whatever. Because like a lot of times companies like, oh, we're going to invest now for the future, but the future may be the next earnings call. You know what I mean? So how do you think kind of that sort of kind of to supplement my thought? Does that make sense to you or? Yeah, no, you bring up a really good point, which is like timing is everything when it comes to the public market. And it's not necessarily everything in the private markets, right? You can prioritize, you know, 100 year long term sustainability, long term business continuity over sort of short term gains. Yeah. And that's not always recognized in the public markets. So I think private companies will be an interesting sort of like group of potential change makers around this issue because there's just so much more flexibility with a privatized model than there is with a public company. That being said, like, I think obviously there's just like a lot more like regulatory frameworks around public companies and their disclosures and having to be transparent about business practices. And, you know, the SEC is is putting out a bunch of different climate and ESG related disclosure requirements. So I think there's definitely a lot more pressure, like outward pressure on the public companies right now to get their ducks in a row. For private companies, it kind of varies, right? If you're a sponsored company, are your investors really pushing you to do this? Are you led by management, by C-suite individuals that really care about this problem? There's a huge spectrum on the private side. I think we'll see more because of the larger sort of like variance on the private side. I think we'll see just more leadership from the private side, from the individuals and the companies that able to be more agile and be more progressive and able to be, you know, just like very almost radical with the way they approach ESG and sustainability. Yeah, no, I think it's going to take a little bit of radical sort of sense and to kind of get the fire burning, you know, big and and loud and fast. Cause yeah, ultimately, like you said, like we're in a time crunch here. It's like a race against time to some degree. I mean, depending on who you talk to, but arguably, yeah, it's 
things have to happen. Things have to happen now, you know, regardless of wherever you stand on whatever side of the fence, but regardless, it's, yeah, I think it's exciting. And I just see this big tidal wave of opportunity coming, you know, folks like yourself that are creating platforms to bring awareness to this stuff is amazing. And so I'm curious for the listeners that like are fired up right now, or like, I want to get involved or, you know, get involved with the workshop or whatever. So you're big on LinkedIn, obviously. And I can put the link in the show notes for that. But is there anywhere like, so then you have the eTech Monkey website. I mean, are those the platforms that basically could lead everyone in the right direction to get more involved or to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I would say LinkedIn and then my blog itself are the two channels to engage with. Some people have told me to make a Twitter. So I've been kind of putting that off because I am very aware that I get addicted to social media sometimes and don't want to necessarily go down that Twitter hole. But I think almost for business purposes, I have to do it. Yeah. I've been on Twitter now for, I mean, I would say consistently as a consumer of Twitter and I follow mostly just like business related things. Like Josh Young is awesome. He always puts Mm -hmm. out a lot of content. Shy Girl, I don't know her. I think her name's Tracy, but there's a few handles. They're literally, I get like that energy market highlights like every hour on the hour from certain folks. So it's like, it's hard, but then I don't know if you know who Rob Barnett is from Bloomberg, but Mm -hmm. I would consider him a friend of mine now. Essentially, he was like encouraging me to be more active on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm already active on LinkedIn. Do the podcast. Like it doesn't pay the bills, but I get the value. But it's like, you can only do so much, you know? Right, right. Yeah. There's a larger burden on Twitter to actually like be active, you know, every day, every hour, almost, (laughs) right? For the ones that are really good at it. So I don't necessarily need that distraction from what I'm doing, but it is really important. There's actually a really good dialogue on Twitter. So I'm going to make one. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. And then two, lastly, there's another initiative that I want to highlight is the Rice Clean Energy Accelerator. Describe what that is and what that's all about. Yeah. So it's an accelerator that's sponsored and brought forth by Rice University. I'm involved as an executive in residence, which means that I kind of actively mentor companies in the accelerator and just help the program as like kind of a officer, if you will. Yeah. There's 17 companies in this year's cohort. So this is the second cohort and they're all clean energy, clean tech, climate tech companies coming at this problem from pretty diverse set of angles. So we have, you know, like a wave energy company. We have companies that are focused on helping corporations figure out their net zero pathway or figure out their emissions and carbon footprint. We have companies that are making nanomaterials, making fireproofing materials. So very, very diverse set of technologies represented and demo day for BEA on November 17th. So if you're an investor, if you're someone who likes getting to know new up-and-coming climate tech startups, who likes to work with startups, who is just a fan of the climate tech space, I I would highly encourage you to attend Demo Day November 17th and get to know some of these amazing companies. Awesome. Well, thanks. I'll make sure and put the link in the show notes and make a few posts on LinkedIn to create awareness around it. Because again, super important. So I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of Like from a macro perspective for you, Deanna, has there been any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years? I mean, you know, obviously during COVID things changed. There was like a reshuffle, if you will, and just a a number of different changes. And all of a sudden we come out and energy demand's crazy. 
Meanwhile, you know, there was this whole like, is oil and gas dead? And then now it's like, oh, peak demand is not here for another few years. And like, there's just all this just conversation. And then amongst that, there's just the whole ESG movement. So again, asking the question, what core belief around energy have you changed your mind on over the last few years, if any? Yeah, I think in your past episodes, you've talked a little bit about kind of the role of oil and gas in energy transition and in climate tech. I kind of came into the oil and gas world with very much a blank slate on what energy is and how it works and how do you fund it and everything. And so I learned a lot about the inner workings of the energy industry through that process and got to know a lot of really, really cool people throughout that process. And, you know, I kind of came out of that into energy transition with the mindset that I think a lot of oil and gas professionals share, which is oil and gas is going to be around for a really, really long time. It's super, super important. We need to keep it going. We need to keep funding it, et cetera. I think now that I've been in climate tech for a little bit and kind of seeing the other side almost and engaging in conversations with people that really have no experience with oil and gas, I see that a little bit more, which is that there's sort of like an unnatural aversion to oil and gas as a tool in the toolkit. But then also, I almost see the outsider's perspective as well in that, like, I think there's definitely a bias by the oil and gas industry to continue funding companies and to continue on the sort of like the trajectory that it's been on of we'll do the same thing over and over again. We'll keep sponsoring more oil and gas companies. We'll keep sponsoring more wells. We won't necessarily like take a more creative approach to sponsoring those wells. Maybe we'll look into more technologies to help us through commodity cycles, but we're not going to necessarily like radically change our model of how we operate in energy because oil and gas is going to be around for a long time. And I think that way of thinking for me has become a little bit outdated in talking to climate tech folks because it's not necessarily seeing the broader picture of things. And it's also not necessarily taking a leadership position in sort of energy transition climate tech. I feel like now after having sort of like separated myself a little bit from true oil and gas, I've noticed that there is definitely an incumbent way of thinking that is Mm. detrimental to the oil and gas industry's participation in climate tech. And there are things moving forward in climate tech the oil and gas industry is not participating in at all. And so I still subscribe to the belief that there are investments that need to be made in oil and gas in order to productively transition the industry. Yeah. But I think what's changed is like now I've kind of come to appreciate a little bit more the other perspective that's anti-oil and gas that's, you know, incorrect. Like I want to be very delicate about this. Like it's of course. It's not the right perspective, but I've come to appreciate a little bit more about where they're coming from. Yeah. In all of this. You articulated that very well. And I would say it's interesting talking about content. I post stuff on TikTok of me just doing like random rants. And I was saying that it's important for us, whether it's humans or people, whoever, to like associate ourselves with different social groups, different demographics, different cultures, different industries. And I mean, I've been in oil and gas since I was 18 years old. So it's the only industry I've ever been a part of, right? And I try to through the podcast and just, you know, going through school and you know, even our inner social circle within my family associate with people that have diverse ways of thinking, different perspectives, people who are anti-oil and gas, people are pro-oil and gas, people are whatever the case is, but like 
like remove yourself from that camp to just kind of like refresh the memory. And it can either allow you to sort of reevaluate your sort of like core belief, or it can sort of give you some reassurance like, ah, okay, what we're saying does make sense because I've exposed myself to other trains of thought. It doesn't even have to be energy. It could be diets or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like just everything in general, like they just think it's important to like diverse train of thought is just like, it's super healthy. And so it's interesting to hear yourself as like, oh, now that I'm removed, I've really gained to appreciate the perspective from the others because, okay, now I can sort of pivot my way of thinking and plan my business accordingly or whatever the case is. It's a really, really refreshing answer. And I saw a post the other day, and I'm not going to mention who it was because I don't want to expose this gentleman, but he was being interviewed talking about oil and gas. And his response reminded me of something that would have been said like eight years ago. You know what I mean? And so when you say outdated, that's like the first thing that came to my mind. And this individual is like very highly respected in the fossil fuel space. He's a huge voice for the industry. Like hearing his answer, I was kind of like deflated. I was like, that's the best you've got, man. (laughs) Really? Like I've heard this before. And so it just made me kind of scratch my head. And I was like, okay, what would have been a better response? I mean, who knows, right? Maybe he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, wasn't really prepared. Who knows? But I agree with you. And again, I think there's lots of great conversations happening like the one we're having, but ultimately, yeah, the the incumbent way of thinking is I think it's just going to inhibit the potential to contribute to the future of energy in the right way, if that makes sense. So, Right. I think like just because oil and gas is going to be around for a long period of time doesn't mean that you should just do the same thing that you've been doing forever and ever, right? That's not the excuse to just not change right? What you're doing and not think about how you could be doing it more creatively, better and better participate in leading the energy transition. So that's what I struggle with is how do we generate these interesting ideas for oil and gas to be able to transition their businesses, transition their models in a way that's productive and that's safe and that also preserves a lot of the value that the industry brings to the world. But then also you know, it doesn't necessarily like encourage people to not think about the problem <laughs> right? and keep doing what they've been doing. I think that's the thing. It's just like, how do we incentivize people to want to change, Correct. to want to keep changing? Yeah. There's a lot of great conversation on this topic on, uh, so Dan and Josh, Dan Prigering and Josh Lowry or Lori, they have a great podcast and they recently interviewed Matt Gallagher spoke about this exact topic. And Matt was very much very open-minded and very thoughtful about the future and how he's going to invest in that. And he's balancing on both, I say balancing, but he's really embracing all of it. And it was like, wow, like that is a true leader in what's going on here. And it was super cool to hear. And they've got a great little podcast that they do. And so for any of the listeners that are out there, I'm going to do a plug for them. I think it's called the Energy in Transition podcast. Mm. But again, a very good conversation, similar to the one we're having right now with some just, you know, high level thought leaders. But yeah, in the interest of time, you know, I think this is something that's, you know, I'm very interested in and could talk for hours, but, you know, I'm sure you've got a lot of stuff happening, but are there any other initiatives or, you know, we talked the workshop, you've got the e-tech monkey, the blog talking about hopefully getting on Twitter, maybe. So be on the lookout for that, but any other messages or any sort of things you'd like to relay before we close out here? Yeah, you know, I'm still kind of like in exploration mode, if you will. And there's a bunch of different projects that I've gotten myself involved in. (laughs) Okay. I think one big area that is 
super interesting to me and that I would love to talk to people about is the carbon accounting and carbon action space. So those are probably two subspaces, but how can companies better be able to onboard products that fit for their needs in the carbon accounting world and be able to report scope one, two, three emissions effectively? So if you are a company that's looking for that type of service or for help or advice on companies to engage with or services or software products to engage with on that front, happy to talk and would love to just brainstorm about what could potentially also be built to fulfill those needs. Yeah. Same thing on the carbon action side too. So how can we incentivize individuals, so consumers to be able to take carbon action and climate action seriously and engage with this world a little bit better than we have as individual consumers in the past. Mm. So if you're interested in that space, also would love to talk. Awesome. And again, I'll make sure and mention that even in a post, but I need to introduce you to an awesome lady who I went to grad school with. Her name's Lindsay Schneider. She's out of Denver, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. She started a company, you know, after we did our business strategic management class called Carbon Village. And she's just an absolute rock star, very passionate about a lot of the things that you've just mentioned. And so I'll send a friendly email and connect you with Lindsay. She's just an absolute beauty. So uh, I'm sure she'd be absolutely stoked to meet you. But no, that's great, Yana. We'll make sure and put all that in the notes here. And again, for all the listeners, please connect with Yana if you're going to be at Fuse or if you were at Fuse, hopefully you got a chance to meet her. I'm going to be there as a moderator for a panel. So Deanna, I'm stoked to see you in person. And yeah, we've never had the chance. So that'll be nice. And again, for all the listeners, please reach out to me if you'd like to sponsor the show. Deanna, thanks again for joining me. Really appreciate the conversation. You're doing such an amazing job. You're making a difference and you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart. And yeah, as you know, an energy consumer, really appreciate all the hard work. And for everyone out there, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Justin. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.